0: And I, I think that uh, it was a, a much faster move that, that with our, you know, convexity product, we, we managed to, to, to capture some of that, but because it was a, a, a short-lived uh, move or even like February, 2018 as well, you know, that that's really too quick to be caught by most uh, CTAs. So you just have to be careful of that, that, that there is protection, but it's a certain type of protection.
2: Hey, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Top Traders Unplugged, where today Alan Dunn and I are joined by Philip Seeger, head of Absolute Return at Capital Fund Management, as part of our series focusing on the one investment strategy that beat everything else in 2022, namely trend following and managed futures more broadly. First off, Phil, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. We really have been looking forward to our conversation. I hope you're doing well in Paris.
0: All, all is good. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invite.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Now, before we dive into all of the uh, various topics that we're going to cover, Phil, um, I wanted to set the stage for the conversation and just give the audience a chance to learn a little bit about um, CFM and its background. Uh, so perhaps you can share just a few highlights, maybe, of the type of strategies that you uh, focus on and also kind of where the business stands today as we are in the early part of
0: 2023. Okay, Um No problem. So CFM started uh, in 1991, and we actually started as uh, a trend follower. So we had a a CTA uh, product. Uh, I joined the firm in in 2000. And uh, when I joined, so my mandate, my kind of first project was to diversify that uh, futures program into short-term strategies on futures. So you can see, sort of early on, the the business model was very much to um, diversify uh, strategies. Uh, you know, not not because we felt that trend following was not a good strategy. It was just a, a question of like trying to stay ahead of the curve. Um, and to, at about that time, we also diversified into other. Asset classes. So we started uh, trading stocks. That was about two thousand and one. Um, so we had a stat up. We started trading single stock options, which was about sort of 04, 05, About that time. Uh, so we had a vol up um, into other liquid instruments uh, like options on the SP, options, treasuries, etc., etc. Plus many other kind of liquid uh, instruments. So today we are. Really multi strat, multi asset. Uh, We have 9.5 billion under management, and about 1 billion of that is in two trend following products. Uh, One is a dedicated trend following product, and one is a convexity kind of defensive, uh, you know, crisis alpha uh, product. Um, We have about 60 researchers. And to do everything that we do, you need a lot of IT support. So we have about 120 ITs uh, out of like total 250 people. We're based primarily in Paris, but uh, we do have some research staff in in New York, which is fairly recent, uh, but we're looking to to build that out.
2: That's wonderful. That's a great uh, summary. And uh, actually, it's really interesting because... uh, CFM in that regard is a little bit different uh, to some of the other managers um, that we have been speaking to recently.
0: I mean, I I think that, uh, you know, I've been listening to some of the other podcasts. I mean, I think that some of our viewpoints are are potentially quite different to others, uh, you know, unconventional, perhaps not controversial, but uh,
2: somewhat unconventional. Yeah, no, I can't. We can't wait to dive into uh, to those differences for sure. And uh, as then you will also know that Alan and I we have this kind of list of of major topics, and 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 we'll dive in a little bit uh, alternate uh, and and see where we go with that. So, as as I always do at this
3: stage, uh, Alan, why don't I ask you to uh, to take it away from here? Thanks, Neil's um, Phil. Yeah, it's interesting as you say. I, I can see how you. You know, you, you CFM can be seen as being quite different. Obviously, you're running trend following, but it's, uh, I suppose, as relatively a small component of the total assets that you're running. You're running kind of a, a number of different quant strategies. So, what's what's the philosophy around that? That's you know, we typically want, like, want to get a, a sense on the, on on the manager's philosophy around markets in general and where where they feel they can extract their uh, returns in markets.
0: Mm-hmm. So, uh, in terms of our philosophy, uh, you know what I would say is that uh, we we believe that uh, inefficiencies do exist, but but they are small and they're very difficult to exploit. Um, we believe, at least for us, that that a, a scientifically kind of rigorous investment process is the best way for us to proceed in in extracting alpha. In order to do that, then we hire like PhD scientists. Uh, predominantly physicists but but more recently in particular like data scientists you know data scientists didn't really exist when i first started in this business but that's certainly something that we've invested in um and and we we hire like phds because when you do a phd uh you're you're solving a, a very challenging problem perhaps well, normally, it's a unique problem that nobody has, has solved before, and and it's a very humbling experience. And these are kind of skills and value, values relevant to, to, to what we're trying to do. So we have a you know very collaborative kind of uh, atmosphere. Uh, teamwork is is essential to what we're trying to do, and I, I think you know this is the way that science really progresses, and it, it it it's the same here. And in terms of like you know regarding trend following. I mean, as, as I said, you know, our, our flagship uh, evolved away from trend following. And then, uh, you know, in 2013, we launched a dedicated trend following program. And the reasons that we did that, uh, firstly, um, we kind of saw a commoditization or a, a mutual fundization of this business, but then also... We wrote um, a paper which was called Two Centuries of Trend Following, and you can kind of tell what we did just just from the title, um, but uh, that, that paper, I mean, the core result of that paper was a PL of uh, two centuries of data across the four asset classes, so equity indices, fixed income, uh, commodities, FX. Uh, um, and you know the, the the core result was a very very stable uh, PL through the, those two centuries, and and that kind of deepened our belief in in trend following as a, as a, a, a good strategy. It's a big out of sample result. We had uh, genuinely never seen that that data, so that that was like a, a big uh, tick in the box for trend following. And in that paper, we also addressed uh, the recent performance. So we we wrote it in about twenty. Twelve or so 20, 2013 so that the, it was in that sort of barren period after the the global financial crisis uh, um, so we addressed that period of, of uh, underperformance as being like consistent with a, a, a statistical fluctuation downwards uh, we dealt with the, the robustness of trend following to time scales which is a great thing about to uh, strategies what we're always looking for is strategies that that if they have input parameters that you see stability to those input parameters and that is the case for for trend following obviously the faster you get the more uh, you incur costs uh and we also address like the disappearance of short-term trend following uh which is something that happened. We actually experienced uh, that because our shorter-term uh, uh, strategies on futures really struggled at the, the beginning of the 2010s, uh, albeit on a different timescale to what we were looking at in in the paper. And then a third observation, which is a very important uh, observation, is uh, the regression of the SOCGEN CTA index. And we wrote another paper on that subject uh, so when you regress this index, which is a great index, you know 20 of the the, the biggest names in this space uh, um, with trend following, then you get like 85 90 percent correlation and you get an outperformance, then that outperformance is about four percent per year. Um, that's you know, you know that four percent essentially covers execution costs and uh, fees. that's quite a profound observation you know once, once you remove trend following from the aggregate cta performance there is nothing left so what that means is on aggregate ctas are offering nothing above and beyond trend following obviously there are some good ctas that outperform and there are some that underperform but the aggregate is not offering anything more so with all that in mind we launched a, a dedicated trend follower and and that is not a replicator you know we what we're trying to do is beat the Solgen cta index with implementation skills and and, and we did actually uh, achieve that uh, um so you know regarding trend following we're, we're big believers that it should be a mainstay in institutional portfolios um you know i remember back in 2019 there was a, 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 an episode where certain big names in this space publicly took a step back from trend following saying that the trend was dead at that time we remained you know like firmly entrenched in the camp of of trend following uh, supporters uh, for for many reasons but you know it, it really does tickle all, all of the boxes in terms of statistical significance in terms of out of sample performance in terms of having an effect which is a believable effect uh, behaviorally, and, and that's backed up by intuition and by experimental evidence. Uh, and then the diversification with the S&P, uh, um, you know, it, it is genuinely uh, uncorrelated. And uh, even better than that, there, there's a hedge in the biggest equity downside moves. And that, sort of uh, hedge is something you know the the, the convexity argument and the crisis um, alpha argument was a big subject for us and and hopefully we can talk uh, more about that
3: great yeah. an awful lot to unpack there as people say but um I guess that the two centuries of trend following—that's very interesting—and uh, a few different firms did a century or eight centuries, or you know, different kind of approached slightly differently. But it is interesting how durable the the, the return series from trend following is. With respect to that research, I mean, when you you touched on how you know you could see the 2012-13 period was just you know a, a random um, you know it was not unusual, I guess, in, in the long term time horizon. Then I guess we had another drawdown, um, kind of twenty sixteen to twenty nineteen. And um, when you look at those periods of of underperformance for trend, you know, in you know over two hundred years. Is it just random, or can you, uh, you know, people obviously want to attribute a narrative to, to to good periods and bad periods, and I guess narrative that, that w- around those was maybe around central banks and maybe around less pronounced um, moves in markets. Would you buy into that, or do you just purely view it as, you know, they, they were uh, on, on the kind of the left tail of the distribution, and it all it is all just a bit random as to when when the turn returns will arrive.
0: I mean, uh, people will always uh, look for a narrative, and and we look for a narrative. You know, we're not uh, blinkered to to what is actually uh, happening in in the market. Uh, we've thought to ourselves as well that you know perhaps policymakers are, are suppressing uh, volatility, so maybe you can incorporate that in, into models and you know models that could tell you when when you should be in the trend and when you shouldn't be in the trend. But we we never found anything that, that really pointed in that direction so what we sort of our view of this is that trend following has a, a, a you know modest risk ad- adjusted returns which are consistent really with the level of risk adjusted returns that you expect from traditional markets and with those level levels of, of, of sharp ratio, You do get extended periods of time uh, where nothing much uh, happens, and and trend following, uh, you know, it's a strategy that that exhibits this uh, feature of uh, of being positively skewed. Uh, And in order to be positively skewed, what that means is that you get accelerations upwards that 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 exist uh, um, for short periods of time. And then extended periods of time where not much happens, uh, you're going to get flat periods. Uh, you know what we stated in in the paper, and we stand by this is is that uh, these sort of flat uh, periods are consistent with the the statistics. Uh, it's difficult to come up with a narrative that really explains, uh, you know, why the, the, such a period could exist.
3: And when you look at the 2010s, which you know, as I said, we kind of had two uh, drawdown periods. I don't know if you if you if you can recall uh, the data, but but were, were, was there similar decades if you go back over the last 200 years? Or how tough was that period? Would you say in 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 the context of of 200 years, um, if you if you can remember?
0: It's a very consistent uh, result. It, it's uh, you know the. the 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 PNL is very consistent with uh, a sharp ratio that is unvarying through the the 200 years. Um,
3: okay. Oh, and is that is, is that about 0. 0.5, 0. 0.6 or or what what do you see that as? So in the paper um I think
0: the sharp ratio was 0. 0.7 but uh, in the paper it was an academic paper so we didn't have costs, and we didn't have fees. You know, our our estimate of uh, trend following provided to the client's uh, net of everything um, is a, a sharp ratio of 0.5. That's what we see consistently through through time. Plus, when you look at uh, hedge fund databases, uh, you know, like self-proclaimed uh, CTA's and and uh, managed futures uh, funds, um, what you see is that uh, if you look at the, the the distribution of sharp ratio versus uh, Uh, The amount of time that the fund has been in business, you see a convergence to um, a sharp ratio of 0.5. And that sharp ratio of 0.5, you know, okay, it's not like high octane stuff, but just to put things in perspective, uh, if you look at, uh, you know, the equity risk premium, it's, I would say, probably somewhat lower than that. It's probably 0.3, 0.4. So, a sharp ratio of 0.5 and in, in the the, the great scheme of things, is actually pretty good.
3: Yeah, and just one point, final one on this paper because I, I think it is very powerful. But I guess people may be skeptical a little bit. You know, two hundred centuries, the markets were two, two centuries, not two hundred. Two hundred centuries would be, would be even more remarkable. But that, that um, would you be know, extreme. yeah. <laughs> um, you know like markets were very different if we didn't have all the futures markets I, i'm you know obviously you would have had to do some work on the data um so maybe tell us a little bit about what kind of adjustments you had to make and how realistic do you think you know the data is going back that far in time
0: well clearly it's not realistic that we could have run a business uh, over that 200 year um, period that that's not realistic but uh, what, what is realistic, I, I, I think uh, yeah. it, it's really a question of uh, looking for evidence that uh, this weak effect that uh, price returns are autocorrelated uh, exists today and has existed for a long period of time. So it may not be a completely meaningful result in the sense that you couldn't have operated a business uh, all that time ago. But nonetheless, it's not it's not meaningless either. It's a result that says that uh, that price returns auto correlate in assets, albeit weekly, and they have done for a long period of time. And this is consistent with you know a, a, a behavioural bias that, that 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 exists that that humans and investors have a propensity to follow trends.
3: Yeah, no, fair enough, Niels.
2: No, I want us to sort of go back a little bit here, Phil, because I, f- I find it very interesting that your roots really are trend following. And then you kind of take a little bit of a, you you add um, other things to your business uh, for a period of time, and then you kind of come back and you double down uh, on trend um, and, and launch a dedicated vehicle for that. So... A couple of questions. Um, but for, first of all, I would also like to say that I, I really uh, like the fact that you've done all this research uh, and it kind of confirms your belief in trend. So in, so one question I had is that when you look at your own business today, it, does it surprise you that trend is a relatively small piece of it or is that just the way it is because trend is generally a smaller piece than than that? And then the second question would be when you then relaunched a trend strategy in thirteen, was it really just taking what you already had or did you come at trend with a slightly different approach than what where you came from originally
0: okay so great great question uh you know what, why is it a smaller piece uh, i th- I think that uh, you know trend following has uh, struggled uh in sort of uh, adopting a role in in traditional uh, portfolios for for a number of reasons uh, you know it's not a, as big a, a part of uh, institutional portfolios as as i would say that it that it should be um it's a, a, a strategy that to uh, you know as as i've said uh, ticks all of the the, the boxes uh, It's uh, genuinely diversifying, genuinely uncorrelated, and even has features which are are good uh, in the tails. Um, But I I think that uh, people do struggle with it. Uh, If you're not a a disciplined investor um, and you are a a performance chaser, then because of this uh, profile, this positively skewed profile of the PNL. That's kind of a performance chasers' uh, nightmare. Um, that uh, I think a lot of people they invest in it to uh, after one of these accelerations. So they're, they're they're performance chasing perhaps after the the global financial crisis uh, after twenty fourteen or even after twenty twenty two. They they stick around for for a few years and and you know remain patient to uh, in inverted commas. Uh, uh, and, and before the next acceleration, by the time the next acceleration comes about, then then they've uh, redeemed. Um, so when they look back on their P L um L uh, through trend following, then it's actually quite poor. And I think that people struggle with that. Whereas my view is that it should really be a buy and hold. Obviously, I'm I'm biased, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, in terms of uh, if I was managing my uh, uh, own money, and I've had this question before, you know, out of all the strategies that you run, if you could only have one strategy, which would it be? And I think it's a no brainer, it it would be trend following because it, it, it ticks the most boxes. Obviously, our business has evolved uh, massively uh, you know beyond the trend following but it, it it's not because we don't like it it's because we feel that we need to try and stabilize and increase the level of return so are diversifying into different approaches uh, um, different data sets uh, you know different techniques etc etc so a huge uh, research uh, process but given the choice you know out of everything that we do i think trend, trend following is probably the one that does tick the most boxes um so your question about you know how we implemented it uh did we do anything uh different i, I think that you know our added value um in our trend following you know dedicated trend following fund is well there's, there's, there's many things but Firstly, not falling into the 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 pitfalls of in-sample overfitting. There are many many ways of doing trend following, and uh, you you can you can Google trend following, and there'll be tons of different ways of doing it. But like you know, it's actually quite easy to to uh, overfit, um, generate more performance in-sample, and then you don't get that performance out of-sample. So that is, is something that requires a lot of experience is to, to, to exploit trend following in, in, in the right way, such that you get that out of sample performance, which is what we're all trying to achieve. But then I, I think as well that you know our added value is uh, everything that goes into building a product, which is to say portfolio construction, uh, execution, uh, you know, all, all of the research that, that that we do in in those areas applies in our trend following product to, as well. Um, so, you know that that uh, is kind of how we 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 set it up is to try and use our what we feel are good implementation skills to build a, a, a better trend follower.
2: Yeah. Well, we may come back to that a little later in terms of how you may think of yourself as being slightly different. But I wanted to I wanted to bring up something that we brought up with everyone, uh, which is this uh, Cliff Asnes uh paper that came out last year, where, you know, kind of the key takeaways uh, really uh is that on one hand, Cliff is saying that, you know, maybe we as a, as an industry we're just being becoming too concerned about Sharp, right? We're 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 doing things to to trend to essentially maybe more for business uh, reasons rather than for actual performance reasons. And that may be not a, a great thing. But then he also talks about whether we as an industry or as, as, as trend followers uh, have a a dual mandate. One is to generate absolute return, but also to generate this crisis alpha. And I know you already mentioned that. So, I mean, I would love to dig into all of these uh, topics and 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 see where we go with that.
0: Sure. So, uh, yeah, we we have a lot to say about convexity. We've written papers on 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 the subject, uh, and uh, it's an interesting uh, subject. Uh, the the trend following offers this. Uh, um, you know, in the, in our last paper on the subject, we had these rather beautiful payoff functions that you can generate that look like straddle payoffs uh, so you you can make trend following look like option uh, payoffs but i think what people don't realize is that convexity is is really a mechanical effect in 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 trend following so even if you apply a trend to a, a random walk then you get to you know sometimes the random walk kind of wanders away too far and if that wandering persists on a time scale of your trend then your trend following approach ga- is guaranteed to make money so that that's where your large infrequent gains come from and and the rest of the time because it's a random walk then you know your overall PL is is, is zero so the rest of the time you're you're losing so you get small frequent losses but large infrequent gains so you know it's starting to look like a, a, a an option uh, uh, payoff and that's really the difference with the uh, um, uh, applying it to financial time series is, is that uh, you get this uh, 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 positive uh, PL when you apply it to um, uh, you know a diversified pool of, of instruments. and that's because of this behavioural bias, as, as I said. So it's kind of a minor miracle, really, that you get uh, a positive sharp ratio plus this convexity if you contrast that with options where the premium is, is very pricey you know you'll get a very uh, strongly negative uh, pnl if you buy uh, options um but of course the convexity is different in its nature it's only convexity with respect to very long and drawn out protracted moves uh, in the underlying but but our experience for clients um so we had some clients that would come to us to talk about the sort of sharp ratio of trend following we would have some clients come to talk to us about the convexity and you know, based on our understanding of convexity, we saw that as, as a business opportunity to, to try to, in a very transparent fashion, uh, maximize convexity in, in, in a product for a small reduction in sharp. So we say to our clients, we're going to reduce your sharp ratio and use that kind of discounted sharp uh, to try and cram in as much convexity as possible. Um, so you know, convexity gets reduced uh, by trend followers by doing a, a few things. I think I think the most interesting um, uh, uh, one is that um, the diversification, um, firstly that, that CTAs do trend following on a diversified pool of instruments. Now, your convexity on the S&P, which is what everybody's looking for, is, is limited to uh, trending on the S&P. And if you diversify beyond trending on the S P, then you're not adding extra convexity. So let's imagine that you add orange juice to your uh, S&P, um, then you are adding convexity on orange juice, which maybe some people are interested in. <laughs> but, uh, you know, mostly people are interested in downside uh, equity risk. Um, so adding trend following on orange juice does not help you in terms of your uh, convexity and then we had uh, also some clients that struggle with this kind of 2018 scenario where you get equities rallying and then equities uh, crashing like the the Vix uh, event um and as a trend follower you 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 your your then looks very correlated with equities uh, um, we, we also um, added uh, a constraint to, to the, the portfolio construction that, to make sure that we have no exposure um, to equities. So you, you, you end up with a product which is anti-correlated with, with equities. But all of this was in, in production um, through COVID and we had, we had uh, very good uh, results uh, through COVID. Um, but coming back to, to, to Cliff's uh, paper, as you can tell, I'm on f- first-name terms with, <laughs> with, with, with Cliff. We all, we um, all are. <laughs> um, so a- AQR, uh, they're a great firm. Um, they're, they're very good at uh, timing their their marketing uh, documents uh, in, in particular. I, I would say that our view is like, you know, if you want trend following as, as a hedge, then we have a convexity-enhanced product. If you want trend following for performance, then we have a different product. If you want something with a better sharp ratio, and it's less correlated to trend following than we have uh, our, our flagship offering so it all, all depends on what the client wants I, I, I don't see why managed futures should be restricted just to to trend following you know we have many many strategies in our flagship that are doing many things that have nothing to do with trend following uh, at all you know i don't know esoteric e- example like using weather data to to, to forecast commodities that, that really has nothing to do with this trend
3: diving into research you, you, you did make the statement about the pitfalls of of kind of in-sample overfitting which I, I think I, I get what you're uh, alluding to but but maybe useful for for listeners to kind of explain e- exactly what that might be in a trend following context is is it just literally doing the back test and selecting the the parameters that that historically worked best uh and um, uh, and so and, and if what 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 is a better way of doing it, or, or what's the right way to do do research in terms of a trend uh, portfolio?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that to uh, in the business that I'm in, in top biases are the the biggest problem. It's the most pernicious uh, bias that that we have in in doing research, and you kind of see um, when you have uh, younger. Researchers that turn up that are, are very enthusiastic—they uh, put together PLs and, and you know, after doing this for for, for twenty-three years, uh, the amount of PLs that you see that are going up, uh, and, and yet in in production, you know, in realized uh, performance, we, we we're nowhere near that. So there's clearly something going on. You know, that you, you don't see what you see, and you. In your back tests, so you, you always take back tests with a, with a big pinch of salt. So, I, I think um, the way around this, uh, there's many things that we do to 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 try and get around this problem. Uh, you know, trying as much as we can to to do out of sample tests, so trying to limit the the size of the the, the parameter set, uh, um, get an understanding of the model, like you know, let let's say trend following is a good example because if you understand where the origin of of the the effect comes from, so it's it's a behavioural bias, it makes a lot of sense. Then that gives you ex- extra confidence that, that that it's an effect that that is going to um, persist um, in the future. So all of that helps to to generate uh, out of sample performance, and in in the context of the trend you know what i mean really is that uh, you can fool yourself um so let's say you have your benchmark strategy and you're trying to improve on your benchmark strategy so you start uh, changing parameters uh, you know maybe there's like a, a a monday effect So, trend following works better on a monday so you know you you over allocate on a monday and under allocate on the other days but then you you start to realise that it's not a statistically significant effect. But the problem is that you can sort of have many small or, or close to st- statistically significant effects, and then you start accumulating them, and your PNL gets better and better and better in the past, um, and that's not reflected in, in the future. So it's all of these types of
3: problems and challenges that that, that we have to deal with. And so, taking that mindset to say to the non-trend strategy, so do you need uh, do you need an intuition around why they work um, or or not in, in in terms of convincing yourselves of of, of their validity? So it, it
0: depends on the the strategy. Uh, you know, we we um, do you know very different types of research. Uh, Often, it's uh, as a function of the timescale of the strategy. Um, on the the shorter-term side, you know, in our flagship program, uh, we have shorter-term strategies. And, and there, you can do things with higher levels of statistical significance. So you're less reliant on um, actually having an understanding. And say for machine learning strategies as well, you know, when it starts getting more black boxy, um, you would like to understand what the black box is doing. But if the performance is so good, um, you know, it, it, it kind of negates the need to, to 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 get an understanding of it. But then, as you go out to slower and slower strategies, you, you don't really have that luxury. Um, so there, you really need to get an understanding of of, of what you're doing, an understanding of what's driving the effect um so yeah it really depends from from model to model
3: and then so, so going back to trend i mean obviously you know you want to avoid of overfitting over you know tinkering with the parameters so you know what are the avenues for for enhancing a trend program via research and given that you know you you kind of want to do as little as possible with it but by the sense of it
0: to to some extent, yeah. The the research um, that we do is very much uh, dominated by um, work on our flagship program. You know, never say never in terms of what we do with the trend. We have made some changes in in, in trend following, so we have a like a, a component which is more like a, a, a cross asset uh, trend within the trend uh, program, but it, it, it's small in comparison to what I would call single assets, a traditional uh, uh, trend-following uh, uh, approach. So really the, you're right that uh, the development per se in terms of the research in signal development is you know nowhere near what we do uh, elsewhere in the firm. I would say the development is more in the other areas like execution and like uh, portfolio construction.
3: Fair enough. Um, And, I I mean, thinking about the – you touched on machine learning there, um, and that's been kind of – I suppose some some of our guests have found that helpful, some less so. You know I suppose what you can get with, with with machine learning is is that adaptive nature reacting shifting to a new environment is that not something you found success applying that in trend following in terms of kind of picking up that that markets are trending faster or slower or anything around that so not
0: particularly on uh, time scales but you you can identify uh, regimes uh, where trend following w- works more or less well, but it, it's not a strong effect, and it's nowhere near as strong as the the actual trend following I- effect itself. So we have toyed with that. I think the biggest the biggest effect is trend following. The second biggest effect is like you know buy the dip uh, type strategies, and and the problem with buy the dip is uh, especially when you get a a crisis. Uh, so the the S and P is is tanking. And then you go in and you buy the dip. You know, where is the bottom? Um, you can quickly find yourself in a position where you've come out of the trend and perhaps you're even going long the S&P and then the s and is crashing. That's a very awkward position to be in. You know, so so these types of strategies, they're, they're, they're not trivial. You know, we have found value in, in machine learning. It's not been a revolution. Uh, it, it's been a, a slow burn. I think that when we talk to clients, uh, you know, they think that, that machine learning is, is something quite new. I mean, uh, uh, when I was doing my PhD, I was using machine learning. It, it's been around for a long time. Sure. <laughs> yeah, no, no,
3: absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I, I,
0: I think what what has changed is really the availability of, of technology. Um, computing power, the availability of recruits that didn't... Sort of know a lot about this, that that know how to use the technology. Um, You know the fact that you can do things on perhaps two lines of code. That when I first started, we had to code a lot of stuff ourselves, and now there's a lot of libraries that 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 you can use to to do this type of thing. Um, But yeah, we 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 see value in machine learning less so on the strategy side but you know a, a lot in in execution for example where you're looking for for um, shorter term predictors uh, the machine learning is very useful there so um you know it, it, it is definitely a, a a growing component of our research
2: yeah I wanted to ask you um the first a very selfish question, because it's a question I get a lot, actually, and I'd love to hear your uh, kind of thoughts uh, on this. Um, If we just take 2022 as an example, um, everybody talks about it it as being a a great year for trend following, but it was also a year where we saw a lot of dispersion in returns between quote-unquote trend followers. What do you think when you look at the landscape of uh, peers drives the main what's the main difference you 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 think uh you have uh or managers uh, trend followers have between them what are the the you know is it just the markets we trade uh you know is it times for speed of trend i mean what what are the things that you think really makes a difference between one trend follower to another
0: that's a good question um so yes time scale I would say that the portfolio of instruments, uh, you know, these are are, are key differentiators, and we can delve more more deeply into that. Actually, in in preparation for this discussion today, we looked at the dispersion of um, of uh, CTA's historically and tried to see whether or not there was a pattern. And there is a slight effect. Uh, It seems that when Volatility goes up, dispersion goes up, which I found a, a little surprising. But it's not that big uh, an effect. Um, so I think I think what's happening there is that the, the time scales may be slightly different. That you know, when you're um, in a crisis, some people get into position um, to benefit from that earlier than than others. So there is a difference in in the the, the time scales. You know, our trend-following approach is on a, a mid to long-term frequency. The reason that we steer clear of the uh, shorter time frames is is one of the costs. So you actually see a very stable performance in terms of sharp ratio across the time scales of the the trend, as long as you don't go too short. Um, but the the then you do see a big difference when you incorporate costs, because on the shorter time frames, uh, you get more, more more turnover, and that incurs more more cost. Um, but uh, you know, on our uh, product where we're trying to uh, create sort of equity downside protection, um, then we did fill in the, the that sort of gap in in terms of timescales uh, to to try to get more. Protection on a range of uh, of timescales. So, it, I think it depends what you, what you're trying to achieve as, as to what timescale you you operate on. But there's clearly a difference across the uh, CTAs. And then um, in terms of the the instruments that, that people trade, you know, there's been a, a move towards uh, what's now become known as alternative markets. Perhaps you could also refer to them as being illiquid uh, markets. It, it's something that's very, it's a very interesting, uh, development to, I, I think, you know, if you consider alternative markets and, and kind of what the optimal amount of instruments that you should be trading is, um, then you should have as many, uh, markets as possible if they're, if they're decorrelated, uh, if they're uncorrelated instruments and you should just, you know, add everything. Um, and then, uh, you know if you consider the the kind of a common correlation a, among markets then the power of diversification is is uh, curtailed beyond a certain number of uh, of of instruments um but then liquidity is a, a real uh, problem i think that our focus has has been on costs and liquidity perhaps more more than others uh, you know when you add uh, illiquid instruments that that's Quite a, a risky uh, endeavor. Um, you know, the point that, that that I would make is that when you're uh, trading illiquid instruments, uh, and and what we've seen is that the performance of uh, of, of alternative market uh, CTA's has been quite good. Uh, but as there's a, a, a flow of AUMs that can move into that space potentially the, the performance is actually coming from a, a, a flow of AUMs, uh, um, a steady flow of AUMs that's pushing prices in the direction of their their position. so you can generate performance like that. Um, and one, if ever that flow of AUMs were to stop, um, then there could be quite a, a brutal uh, decay of the impact uh, um, in illiquid markets will send performance in the opposite direction. So it, 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 it's an interesting development. And then, and then I would say as well that to the, the danger is that the, the more diversified your pool of instruments becomes, the less convexity you get, the less defensiveness you get, the less equity downside protection you're going to get. With the example that I gave of orange juice, uh, trending on orange juice does not help you to protect against uh, equity um, you know, S&P downside. Uh, as you go to more and more esoteric uh, uh, portfolios, then you get less and less convexity, and that's perhaps what we saw um, last year in 2022. Is that that you know the um, more illiquid sort of alternative market uh, offerings that their performance, albeit positive, was not as positive as uh, as on the liquid markets.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, one thing I've certainly learned to appreciate uh, in, in my career in this uh, industry is that, you know, the devil really is in the detail. Um, yet most of the conversations, I think, most of the understanding or the way people think about trend following often goes to the actual kind of signal generation. Are you using moving averages, breakout, time series, momentum? What what are you doing? But there are many other parts of what we do Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts about how the importance you put on things like correlation, uh, volatility, the choices you make about these things, how much do you think that actually moves the needle relative to whether you're using one type of trend following to another, uh, so to speak. Uh, So I'd love to to hear your thoughts about that.
0: Yes, you know, I I I think um, I would group that to under a category of uh, of risk control how, how do you do your your risk control um so yeah historically we've put a lot of effort to, into understanding correlations into cleaning correlation matrices uh, reducing the amount of noise in in the measurement uh, of correlations and that that certainly uh, helps um we we see value i i think uh, you know You you need to be able to estimate the correlations uh, um, and clean your correlation matrices, but you also need to get uh, estimates of of volatility. I I think the volatility estimates need to be um, somewhat more prompt in terms of uh, being able to deliver your targeted uh, risk. So what are we trying to do with our uh, risk management? We're trying to keep risk stable we're trying to hit a target and we don't do that for fun it's more like it does give us better risk adjusted returns you know when you when you backtest uh, um keeping risk stable is is better for for outcomes um and you think about what what we're trying to maximize with our our risk management it i, I think what we're trying to maximize is sharp while controlling the tails so like you could think of it as being you know, perhaps uh, uh, sharp over uh, ketosis, you know, like fat tails, a measure of fat tails. So you're trying to minimize the fat tails and, and maximize the, the the sharp ratio. And we do that to algorithmically. I think that that would come as no surprise. But we also do, uh, because our risk modeling is is backward-looking, you know, necessarily, there's things that are happening in the market that we're aware of that our risk model is not aware of. So we do also um, try to forecast uh, gaps in the market, the potential for tail events, and we do that by sitting around a table in a, in a committee. Um, so I sit on on that committee. You know, we've discussed such things as like uh, the Bank of Japan recently. Uh, you know, coming out of the uh, the yield curve control that that, that they've been operating, um, also through COVID. You know, what what could potentially happen in terms of uh, tail events, uh, and and looking forwards, uh, you know, the the debt ceiling that that is coming up in in the US could that potentially create a tail event? So yeah, that, obviously we're doing everything algorithmically, but I think that that side uh, trying to understand being aware of what's happening in the market is, is also very important.
2: Okay. Yeah. I, that was actually one question I wanted to just maybe, uh, ask you, uh, because I wasn't in, entirely sure. So what you say is you're, you're aware of these, but you actually, that the system runs as they should, or, or do you intervene? Um, in, we intervene. In, in, you intervene. Okay. Yes. Okay. So okay. for example, the,
0: the, the bank of Japan, uh, what they were doing um, in terms of yoke of control, we stopped trading the JGB.
3: I just wanted to move on and talk about kind of uh, the role of the trend and managed futures in a multi-asset portfolio Um, because Phil has touched on a a few of these kind of topics already you know, obviously, you mentioned you've got, I, I don't know if you call it a vanilla trend or met your kind of flagship trend, and then you have the the more defensive trend with with the capped uh, equity beta. Is that, I mean, do you see that as driven by investor demand or if, you know... If if you're running a simple, if you were running a simple multi-asset portfolio, stocks, bonds, and adding something to it, do you think it's better to to, to go with something where uh, the trend is has the equity exposure curtailed or not?
0: So we we did uh, obviously a lot a lot of research on this point, uh, and what we did was to. Take our so we have a dedicated trend following program. We have a, um, a kind of convexity enhanced program, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and we have <clears throat> we have equities, and you know you could even throw in a a sixty forty, which tends to be um, quite correlated with with equities anyway. But whatever your your preferred benchmark uh, is, uh, and then you know try and see uh, based on various metrics. Uh, um, what the results are uh, when you when you combine um, everything together, and and so that required a certain amount of thought as as to what metrics it is that you're really trying to maximise. Um, so the way that we thought about the problem was uh, rather than looking at, at sharp ratio, is to look at uh, sharp ratio also. Uh, incorporating uh, drawdowns uh, in in various forms because it, it's not easy to sort of get a handle on drawdowns so we started thinking about uh, i mean if you can look up the sterling ratio and and that it's like a gain over uh, drawdowns rather than gain over volatility but it, but it, it's similar in spirit to what we were trying to do um but then, how do you define drawdowns? That's really the problem. Uh, so we had various definitions of drawdowns. You know, in the absence of knowing, um, uh, like having a, a dogmatic view, then you kind of average over several different definitions, and, uh, and that's what we did. And yes, it, it, it confirmed that uh, you know our um, equity downside protector w- was better. In the mix um, when picking these types of of, of metrics that did incorporate drawdowns, so that that's the way that we
3: we dealt with it. Okay, and I'm guessing then if so, if you were looking at the total portfolio, say sixty forty plus trend, um, if you were just looking at the say the the compound annual growth rate. Um, forgetting about drawdown, it, you would be better off with your with your normal trend trend unadjusted. Is that fair enough?
0: Better off or or, or not much different, Let's say. No. Okay.
3: Yeah. And you, you talked a bit about the convexity in this example of adding orange juice or not. But is it not? You know, our experience is often that 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 actually when you get these equity draw. Drawdowns or equity sell-offs. It's it's actually the non-equity markets where you get the big moves. So you know, COVID, for example, the commodity markets started showing evidence of the problem. Obviously, they were very China sensitive in kind of January, February of that year, and and obviously you tend to get moves in bonds. So is that you know is that not an important source of the of the of the return profile, which gives? Manage futures and trend following. it, it's it's this convex profile.
0: That is, in indeed, the, the case. Uh, you know, s- strictly speaking, uh, the convexity comes from trending on equities. But what you know is that uh, that things will be uh, correlated, uh, so you you get correlations uh, in in the tails. Uh, um, uh, in, in particulars, so, uh, you know, I think through COVID, the, the bigger Contributor was actually fixed income, um, so yes, you, you you get convexity through correlations uh, uh, with other instruments. But the more esoteric the instrument gets, uh, you know, the less the the, the correlation is, and and the, and the less effect you get. I mean, these moves in commodities. You know, we wrote a, a paper on the fact that I th- I think that what what actually happens with commodities. If you're trending on commodities, you actually get um, a hedge against uh, inflation, so convexity against inflation. If you try and model inflation, then you see that it's very well modeled by commodities. It, it makes a lot of sense. So if you just regress CPI with all of your instruments, you'll see that commodities are, are really dominating the explanation of, of CPI. So when you're trending on commodities, you're actually like you can think of it as being trending on on inflation so in the inf- in the big moves in inflation um up and down then you get protection so you're getting that that convexity um on inflation as well which which is also you know a great thing i think probably most people don't don't realize
3: yeah and uh, maybe just one final one on this Topic of, you know, using trend within within a multi-asset portfolio, um, you know, obviously we've talked about how we cap the equity beta um, for, and really what we're talking about here is dealing with this kind of 2017, 2018 type scenario where trend following becomes correlated with equities and then you're worried about both of them turning down at the same point. Have you looked at other things other ways of possibly solving this problem of either adjusting the the risks so, so maybe having less risk in in trend at that time or also maybe adjusting the speed but so still trading all the markets but making some other adjustment um to how trend operates um to, to avoid that kind of current cu- concurrent drawdown with trend and equities
0: so we have looked through the history of the firm it, uh, such things, uh, but yeah, it's, it's very, very difficult to uh, to sort of time and to know ahead of time. You know, it, it's tautological that the as you look back, then one timescale was better than others. But to to actually do that causally, or what I what I call causally, uh, you know, without sort of that that uh, uh, the benefit of hindsight, uh, it, it's very difficult to to capture that effect.
2: Yeah, just to, before we sort of uh, start wrapping up our conversation, Phil, um, just a couple of things. One of the themes uh, that we are picking up from our conversations is really that a lot of the larger managers, well, a lot of the kind of managers in the CTA index whom we're speaking to saw flows uh, head out of trend uh, last year, um, most likely because investors were, you know, rebalancing their portfolios, et cetera. But it kind of also, you know, touches on a little bit the point about sort of just generally capacity uh, among managers and strategies, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd love to hear your thoughts a little bit about what's a good measure. How do do managers find out whether they are, um, you know, near or at capacity in general? And then the other thing I wanted to ask you, because maybe some of the assets uh, flew out of um, of uh, man- or, or some of the larger managers, but but we did see that uh, replication products uh, did see an inflow, probably from a completely different investor base, namely the uh, individual investors. But since you are um, you know much more of a quant than uh, Alan and I can claim, uh, I wanted to ask you what are the pitfalls, uh, potential pitfalls of doing replication on managers when you only look at at some kind of regression of returns when you're not actually building your own model uh, beneath that. Well, and because, you know, I guess my own concern is that we may see a big inflow uh, into these replicator products because they promise that they can deliver kind of everything but but the fees, so to speak, which, you know, we can always debate. But it would be a great shame if there was, and, and they kind of, and, and, you know, I, I, I like the people who do it. They come on the podcast on a regular basis. So, so I have to, uh, I have to be political correct when I say this. Um, but of course, one of their pitches, uh, is that, oh, you have this manager risk, right? Uh, just because XYZ did well last year, you don't know if he's that person is going to do well next year. Sure. But what about the replicator risk? I mean, there must be a risk somewhere if you're choosing one way of doing replication that could also you know um get you into trouble, so that was a lot of question in one sentence bill so pick whatever you remember from it and let me let, let us know
0: so, um going back to how you um started this this question uh sort of rebalancing indeed we we have seen some rebalancing that's def- definitely the case I, I find it interesting that uh, you know clients will rebalance uh, um their equity portfolio so when they see um downside risk in equity so they get losses from equities and then they they reinvest uh, you, you never see that uh, with trend following so when trend following underperforms they they, they never reinvest in, in trend following I, I think uh, again it's kind of a sign that uh, there's, there's not really traction in institutional portfolios uh, for for trend following um on the subject of, of capacity you know so the, the capacity of of trend following it, it's an interesting question it's, it's always an interesting question uh, where your your capacity is for a strategy or for a for um, you know, a product or a program. Uh, as, as a scientist, you'd kind of like to run an experiment and and go way past your capacity to see where your capacity is. But obviously, that's not a good business model. Um, but uh, so, trend following is it's it, it's a, a funny um, animal, really, because uh, it's not an arbitrage. It's not a you're not taking advantage of a of, of a mispricing. Um, and like you know, just modeling trend following, you you you, you do see that um, if you add more trend followers to a market, then you get better performance. So that, like the mechanism for removing uh, the, the the trend signal from a market through a, a, an excessive amount of people is not really there. So uh, the capacity, uh, I, I would say, for mid to long term trends is higher than most strategies because firstly it it's a directional strategy so you, you don't really have to like run market neutral portfolios it's it's uh, you know um, uh, something that to uh, naturally lends itself to generating a, a lot of risk so you don't need a lot of gross to be able to do it and also the fact that you're trading the most liquid uh, um, uh, instruments in the world. You know, these are the deepest markets in the world. So, so the capacity of, uh, of, of uh, trend as a strategy is actually uh, high. Um, You know, when when we estimate capacity, I, I think that what we tend to do is really just base it on our experience as, as much as anything. Um, we also, as a firm, we have the, the, the benefit of running um, uh, higher frequency faster strategies so we have a a huge database of uh, um, the trades that we've done uh, you know often quite sizable trades so we we feel like we have a control over our our execution Um, so potentially kind of scaling up the strategy in your back test uh, you feel more comfortable doing that Uh, and then on the last point so replication uh, issue uh, you know so we we have not built a, a replicator. I'll just state that again. you know what we're doing is we feel that we can um, uh, offer the market a, a very good trend following dedicated trend following uh, uh, program. Um, the risk of these replicators, I would say, is really, you know the, the implementation skills required to do this. And it's a non-negligible um, amount of work that gets put in um, many millions of dollars invested into building these types of programs. So I would say that the main risk in investing in a, in a replicator is that you're not investing with someone who, who has that, that, that skill set. Yes, you can regress and they can offer you a product with very low fees, but just be careful of the fact that uh, the cost may well be in the fact that you do not deliver the performance longer term. Um, so that, that's what I would say.
2: Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Final question, Phil, um, and that is just something we we wanted to ask everyone uh, in, this, uh, in this in this uh, in series, and that is. You know what's the one thing you hear about trend following that you disagree with the most?
0: So uh, I'll give you perhaps a few um <laughs> Oh yeah <laughs> so, sure. But firstly more than one. <laughs> Firstly that it that it's easy. I really don't think that it's easy. You you could come up with a naive uh, PNL but then going from from that through to something which is uh, implemented uh, and a- actually generating, you know, a reasonable uh, uh, degree of risk-adjusted returns that that's not easy. Um, so, you know, perhaps I'm repeating myself, but don't underestimate the importance of uh, of implementation skills. Um, also, I, th- I think that there's sort of a, a, a perhaps a, a level of naivety on the the, the convexity. Um, you know, the downside to uh, protection that you get from the trend is that it may be a mechanical effect, but it, it still remains statistical. It's not the same thing as options. If you want the insurance, um, then you have to buy options and pay the premium. And that gives you like guaranteed to uh, uh, pay out when the thing that you're insuring against actually happens, meaning the equity uh, crash. In the case of the uh, trend, um, you get that protection uh, when um, you know it's a path-dependent thing. So when markets are in that sort of long and protracted uh, uh, drawdown, which which is kind of often the case, you know, you see crises. Crises tend to play out over on long timescales. You look at the the, the global financial crisis. Uh, that that's that's what happened, and that's why the trend did, did very well. It, the the kind of CTA business did less well uh, through through COVID. Uh, and I, I think that uh, it was a, a much faster move that that with our you know convexity product we, we managed to, to to capture some of that, but. Because it was a, a, a short-lived uh, move, or even like February 2018 as well, you know that that's really too quick to be caught by most uh, CTA's. So you just have to be careful of that. That that there is protection, but it's a certain type of protection.
2: Yeah. No. Absolutely. <laughs> Phil, this was a great way to um, wrap up a fascinating conversation. Um, Thanks so much for being on the podcast and for sharing your thoughts and insights with us. And we hope we can do this again sometime in the future. And to all of you listening today, I hope you're able to take something from today's conversation onto your own investment journey. And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues from Alan and me. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged as we continue our deep dive into the CTA industry. And in the meantime, go check out the show notes for this episode and all the other resources that you can find on our website. And as usual, not least, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged.